Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. At one point, if you haven't already done it, you're going to be doing it wondering where your family came from, your your family history. Now, there's ways you can do that DNA test, but I can tell you from experience, they don't really give you the big picture. They give you little pieces of it, but then sometimes you need somebody to put the links together, put the pieces together. And that's where she comes in. She's an amazing uh, genealogist and just She's your researcher if you want to trace back, and not just family, all other situations. Diane Kelly Runyon from Lineage Links is back with us. Welcome, Diane. How are you doing? Hi, Steve. I'm doing great. Doing great. Looking for dead people all day long. <laughs> it's like, it gives new meaning to, I see dead people. Remember that movie? I see dead people. I virtually do see dead people. Um, yeah. Um, Today, I thought we'd talk about something that's always on a genealogist's mind and also the people that are researching their family members that have traveled from one nation to another, whether it is going from, you know, Ireland to Australia or to New Orleans or even coming from China to San Francisco. There are a lot of stories and a lot of ways of finding the knowledge, but it is sometimes pretty daunting. Now, I have spent 40 years, 40, and I'm telling my age now, 40 years trying to find the passage of my family from Ireland, and I had kept looking for, you know, docking stations in New York and Boston, and then I got to work Galveston, why would they be that far? But I was reaching at straws. How I couldn't find them. And just recently, a genealogist in Scotland found them in Canada. Mm. I would have never thought that. And so, well, so um, sometimes you're lucky and you have it, and sometimes it's just going to take a lot of work. And I guess that's, um, you know, part of the fun and aggravation of it all, but not everybody came in on Ellis Island. So many myths and truths to this whole immigration situation. Like we talked last week about Lithuania, which I had a lot of great comments from people about Lithuania, which was really surprising. Not that I don't think it was an, a riveting discussion, but I never thought there'd be so many people with Lithuanian backgrounds listening to the podcast. So when you're talking about people that are coming from, say, Eastern Europe, they're going to walk, I mean, in the earlier days, all the way to um, Rotterdam, to places in France, to Brenham, to those places in more Western Europe to take a passage to the U.S. Now, if you're in the British Isles, Liverpool is the, the big hub. And when you look at records, it's like going on the, the metro. If you are getting on the boat in Cork, Ireland, your ticket will actually say Liverpool, Liverpool or Glasgow, wherever the beginning trip is, and they're just picking up people along the way. So it has a beginning and an end, kind of like when you look at the metro stations. So when you're looking at, like, Cork, Ireland, and you're going, oh, my gosh, you know, 
this is why I can't find them, because you're needing to look at Liverpool. That would be the first go-to place. Now, you have Dublin, Belfast, Neary, and all those other places, but they're, they're much smaller. So a lot of people came from the outer lands to Liverpool because that was mostly a, a big hub for that. But we talked about the push-pull last week and how why people would be leaving their homeland and looking to another place. And still there were a lot of reasons for people that lived in rural areas to leave their homeland because of things we never really thought about. It would be like the Industrial Revolution. All of Europe was pretty much agrarian societies, which is farming. And when the Industrial Revolution came about and people more went to the cities to work in factories, it really decimated the rural cottage industries. So now they have to try to assimilate to a different way of life. And also, what was also interesting, and people don't realize this, and this is from coming from the United States side as far as immigration is concerned, is that there were 6,200, I mean 6,200, I can't even talk today, 622,000, thank you, uh, men died in the Civil War. And those are all men. So what happens? We don't have husbands, fathers, workers, and we need to replace that deficit of um, working individuals. So that ended up being quite um, an unknown reason for people to migrate to the U.S. People were working on um, wartime migration and expedited census, census, boy. censorship. There you go. <laughs> you could tell it's Monday. Yeah. Oh my yes, gosh. it is. Yep. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, expedited citizenship, and Lincoln, it was one of his big deals to promote that, to get more male um, citizens into the U.S., because it was really, the war decimated our, our, you know, workforce, especially. So a quick question about that, Diane, here in the United States. Is it reasonable to assume that the the main port, port of entry was Ellis Island, New York City, were people mm-hmm. coming from other areas into the United States back in the day? I'm talking like, you know, the turn oh, of the yeah. 1900s. Yeah, 19th century stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, this is what people don't realize. They think Ellis Island was the end all to beat all. But actually, everybody went to a place called Castle Garden from 1820 to 1891. And that's another um, island by Ellis Island. It was more of a, it wasn't an immigration port. It was just a boarding port. And so it wasn't until 1892, Ellis Island became what it is known for today as an Mm. immigration port. But if you're looking for, like, Irish immigration, Boston is huge, Baltimore, you have Philadelphia. A lot of Germans came in through Philadelphia. So you have a whole pocket right there, New York, Boston, Baltimore, and they will come in those areas. Now, people don't know that Atlanta, Galveston, (coughs) excuse me, Galveston, um, 
you had Maine, you had Canada, you also have the West Coast, which nobody really thinks about it that much because we're over on this end, that a lot of Asian migration came from San Francisco. Mm. So um, don't always, you know, you could go to statueliberty.org and look up your family name. And if you get discouraged, start going Philly, Boston, um, Boston, Baltimore. Also, a lot of people came through Canada because it was a lot cheaper to do so. And um, they stopped in many places along the way, Quebec City, Montreal, Toronto, and then they would take a ferry or some kind of transportation to the state. So um, you have to really broaden your thought about where they are. Now, in Ellis Island, because they had built this huge facility, they were able to take more immigrants in, and because the port was, you know, already set up to take this, they became the talking point. And, of course, the Statue of Liberty was definitely a thing that people leaned on. It would meant a lot to people about freedom, and they finally made it, and they can get off the seasick boat, which would oh, be rough. Mm. Hey, for those of us that need to take a lot of Dramamine, that had been tough. But it was what was interesting about it is they um, paid about thirty American dollars. Let's say that that was depending on what currency they were in. It comes to about thirty bucks if you are per person for steerage. Now it'd be fifty for second class, a hundred ninety to a hundred for first class. But they would only spend sixty cents per person per day. So they were making huge bank. These um, cruise lines, well, they weren't cruise lines, the immigrant passenger lines, and most of the people were steerage. Obviously, if you're taking your whole family and you've been a farmer, you don't have a whole lot of money, and and you're trying to bring some kind of money over so that you could start a new life. They had to sell every single thing they had, and then they had to carry everything. Wow. Not like I can have more checked bags or something. So... <laughs> Excuse me for the coffin. <laughs> it's quite all right. Uh, I know. I need the cough button on here. But <laughs> I don't it, so. Well, you know what? Uh, it's We're live and it's regular radio, so it's all good. Um, yeah. When I love the fact that you just said you can look up the Statue of Liberty website and and get you know, a little bit of insight. Uh, for me, I would think, and, and it's not about me. I'm just using it as an example. Yeah, an excellent example. It's what you know. Yeah. So I have pretty common names, you know, on both mm-hmm. sides of my family. Um, if we, as I learned in the last couple of months, I have on my father's side, major Lithuanian influence background. Um, right. And as you've discovered that the names aren't always what you think they might be. So you may be plugging in what your name is or what you think it is. And again, you know, names like Smith and uh, Jones and, you know, it, it may be something radically different. And then again, with a name that's so common like that, would you say it's kind of like a needle in a haystack when you're looking on sites like that? Oh my goodness. I, I can't even tell you. Here's here. I'm going to give you a little, a little, background on this naming situation. I know I touched upon it last week, mm-hmm. that um, when they would buy their ticket, and usually it was from an agent, they were trying to encourage people to immigrate 
So they would send agents. It's like sending the guy from the timeshare thing. We're going to give you free tickets to the Star Wars thing and sign up. So they're giving this, you know, it's the golden streets of New York and et cetera, and you can have blah, blah, blah. So they would sell these tickets to the family, but they were the ones that write your name down. Now, when you go, because it's on your ticket, just like if you were flying United or anything else, that ticket you're holding, like an airline ticket, would have your name on it. Hmm. And you'd have to have a birth certificate. That's what we noted about the Lithuanians. They had to have it translated from the Polish priest to another language. Like they're in document hell, kind of like we are today, in, but just in a whole different situation. Um, so when they would give their ticket to the captain of the ship or the purser, they would record that ticket and everything on it, you know, name and, and age and who you're with and where you're going to meet and et cetera, was on what's called a manifest. That manifest will list everybody, just like an airplane manifest has everybody on there. And then when you get to your port, like, say, New York or whatever, then that manifest is turned over to immigration. So they just hand it over. And when they went through Ellis Island, the only thing they were doing is when they came up to the desk to, to you know, be screened, the guy was just saying, is this you? They were just making sure you were there and you checked it off the manifest that you made it. They weren't changing any names. Now, I know that whole myth about changing names gets so crazy, and I see it all the time. But immigrants were free to change their name once they left and went out into the world. And my family did that also. They were... Um, Irish and owned a business in Cleveland. Their name is Kelly. Mm -hmm. And I had been doing genealogy 10 years before my dad finally told me that's what our real name was. And I was 30 at the time. I was not too happy that I was going down this road because they said, well, we didn't want you to know that we changed our name to Kellogg. And I'm going, why? You know, for them, that was like, I don't know, a shame or something. But he did this for his business. He owned a printed bit printing business in Cleveland, so they wanted to go by a more Anglican name and not an Irish name. And so they changed their name. And the reason why? They were getting mail from the Catholic Church. Really? <laughs> hmm. So everybody, you know, has a, a way of deciding what they're going to do. And so after they immigrated, after they got into the country and, and got their life settled, they can change their name to Honey Boo Boo for all it would matter. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it went. But here's something interesting about Ellis Island, and I don't know if it was as rigorous at the other ports, is that if you were first or second class passenger, then the doctor would come on board once you would port, and they would give you the quick look-see, you know, if you were crazy or whatever. And, um, and then you could just walk off the ship and go off, there you go, off you go. But if you were steerage, 
you ended up going to Ellis Island for another assessment because they were considered the unwashed for many reasons, many reasons. Because they did, they did at those times, they weren't into hygiene. They didn't understand the reasons of hygiene. And until later life, I mean, later times, until the early 20th century, did they realize that um, this was a big problem. So when you got to Ellis Island and you were steerage, that means you were paying the very lowest ticket, and um, you would end up, they would give you a bath. Some people had never seen a bathtub in their life, and they would fight you tooth and nail because they thought you were going to drown them. It's almost like when you. It's almost like when you put a. Uh, you know, your cat needs to be cleaned for whatever reason, <laughs> and you put your cat yeah. under the sink for just a moment, just because you need to. You don't want to. You need to. Right. Same situation. It seems like, and and <laughs> understandable in 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 both situations. Absolutely. Can you imagine if we would take our thought process and put ourselves into? Um, I'm going to another country that I've never seen. I've lived on a farm all my life. That's all I know. I only speak this language. I barely could read and write, if at all. And you feel very vulnerable. You're in a new land. You're in a new land. You don't know anybody. You don't know anybody. They just drop you off and say, see ya. And so unless you have someone that's meeting you, which at Ellis Island, you had to have somebody come and pick you up. That had, but this didn't happen all places. And you just walked off, and you're like, "Okay, now what do we do?" Uh, You know, it would be scary, and especially if you were a parent and you had all these kids, and they were wanting McDonald's. Well, you know, they're not having McDonald's, but they're starving. Well, where are you going to get food? Where are you going? You don't know anything, and you don't speak a language, and that's why they ended up in pockets of familiar language and culture, because what are you going to do? If you're a German, you're not going to go live with the French or the Italian neighborhood because you can't communicate, and it would be very, very frightening, I would think, especially if you had no worldly knowledge of anything other than your little small town in whatever city you or village you lived in. It would be it'd be tough. It'd be tough. Mm. Would you say, Diane, the percentage coming through Ellis Island at that time, you know, let's say like the, the mid eighteen hundreds to the early nineteen hundreds, would you say it was like, you know, seventy percent of the immigrants that came to America? Probably. Probably 50 to 70%, yeah. Mm. And I'm wondering, based on everything you said, you got to come over with your birth certificate and such. How do you know, when they were when they were bringing those people in and checking the records, how do you know it's actually that person holding that birth certificate? You don't know that. <laughs> right. We're making your job even harder. Yes, and... and Here's another thing that I never thought of, and I came across this in genealogical research, and I felt so stupid after he told me this and why I never thought of that. But I had a client that family member came over from Western Europe. He was on the ship, and then he just totally disappeared, like gone. 
It's like, did he die or whatever? Because on the manifest, they had to put down if you died and you were buried at sea. All those things are recorded. Hmm. Couldn't find anything. So I called a friend of mine in Jamestown um, Historical Society in Virginia, and I said, now what's the deal with that? And he goes, he was a stowaway. I'm going, what? He was a stowaway. He said, sometimes men would volunteer to be part of the crew and then you'd get to where you were landing and have to go out for a smoke and never come back and that's how they snuck into the country so they do that now as they did then but not to that this extent but yeah a lot of that was uh, huge and you know the business the profit was 45 to 60 thousand dollars a trip for the for the shipping industry wow that's what and they're giving you especially in steerage you are getting almost just barely survivable rations at all so a lot of people would bring a lot of their food but you could be on there if you were if you were the lower group your your trip is taking longer you know than your first class people your white tablecloth individual. So um, that would be very tough. But you know what was interesting is they had some very interesting ways of evaluating that many people. When you go to Ellis Island, they have a second floor. And what they did is the evaluators would stand there on the railing and watch people walk up the steps. This is brilliant. I thought, boy, I would have never thought of that. They would walk, they would watch to see, were you short of breath getting up the steps? Did you have a problem getting up, like if you had a disability, a muscle weakness or whatever? And they would be evaluating you the whole time. Now, what kills me is and always has is the button hook thing for the eyes. They never wash their hands, and then they also use the, one button hook, go to the next person. Well, trachoma is really pink eye. Can you imagine <laughs> giving it to every single person that walked down there? I didn't think of washing them oh. until, you know, early 1900s. Oh. So. <laughs> you know, th- these are the things that I just, and not that I'm a germaphobe, but I, I, I'd say I'm germ-aware. And these are the things yeah. I don't consider because I'm, I'm more focused in our conversations on what it was like and, you know, people coming over on, you know, ships and those conditions. But yeah, you bring up some very valid points, all of this. Uh, what a challenging time. I guess on the, the flip side, it's the promise of a new beginning. So maybe that in their minds made them feel more comfortable that, yeah, we're doing this. It's not easy. But on the other side, this is what we need to do for our families and our lives. Does that sound like what you think it was like? Absolutely. And I think um, not knowing what you're really getting into, it's probably better. Mm, True. Because you would go, "Mm, nah, not going to do that. Yeah. But what's kind of funny is, and you never think of this, is you have all these people coming from different parts of the world and what kind of food do they eat? People from Italy have never seen a potato. Wow. From people from Ireland never seen a tomato. 
And none of them ever saw a banana. It's like they're being introduced to all these new foods. Amazing. Amazing. Don't exist in their and and here we are, you know, in our, our privileged lives, you know, <laughs> yeah. to turn around and say, I don't eat seafood. I'm not eating seafood. Well, listen, if you had nothing else to eat and it was placed before you, what are you going to do? What's this yellow thing that looks like a, I don't even know what this is. Oh, a boomerang. No, that's a banana. (laughs) That's a banana. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And I know we're running up against the clock, but they had some, we can talk about this next week because there's some really interesting things. But they had this, the Italians brought something over called muscasole. It's like a hard tack, and I was spending the week looking at diaries and letters of the immigrants and talk, you know, in their time, and one lady said that she has a piece of this muscasole that was 50 years old, so it was like hard tack. It was, and they, they brought it over in tons of it just to keep from starving. Wow. So... I don't know. If we could go on forever, oh. it just is so fascinating. But I would be a nervous wreck keeping my kids from falling off the ship. Uh, you know, all these points you bring up, you know, at, at, even in the last couple of minutes, you know, things we don't think of. And then this no. is our ancestors. This is our family. This is what they went through. It's fascinating. I want to remind everybody, your website, if anybody's looking for some historical research or genealogy, or you just want to look back and figure it all out. It's so, it's amazing. And the way you do it, Diane, you tell, and I tell a story about us and how you've done some research for me and my family, but you tell the story. When you, you know, plunk the $50, $100, whatever for the DNA test, you don't get the story. You just get a couple yeah. of pieces of information. Uh, and a lot of times it's... Uh, it's, it's loose. It's just floating out there. You don't have a complete picture. Lineagelinks.com is the website if you want to start the conversation. And uh, well worth it. Well worth it when you learn. You know, we're only here for a short time. It would be nice to know how we got here, how our family got here. And again, I thought I was mostly Irish, German, and, uh, and, and, and English. I'm not finding a lot of German and a lot of English. <laughs> finding Lithuania, Lithuania, never even who, knew. Who would figure? Who I, would figure? I didn't. And uh, I, but we'll continue to talk about this next week. I would love there's to. So many cool things to even know about that people don't know unless they really drill down on what people's lives are like. And yeah. they had no iPads, no cell phones. The kids could play games on. Can you imagine entertaining your child for six months on the? deck of a ship. I'm going to block that thought out right now. I am too. <laughs> uh, Diane, always great talking with you. And uh, yeah, I look um, forward next time we get together. Okay. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you. Have a good week. You too. LineageLinks.com. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from the business capital of the world. This is the Podcast Business News Network. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody, squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly... It's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed,
could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.